Good morning. It's an honor to be with you. I want to begin by sharing a statement that I believe captures the essence of what Jesus teaches here in John chapter 3. And it's possible that this statement could be misconstrued or misunderstood perhaps, but I think it puts the emphasis in the right place. And don't let the simplicity of this statement keep you from grasping its radical truth. That's often how it is with the teachings of Jesus. Here is the statement. Christianity is not a way of life as much as it is a gift of life. You see, when you think about Christianity being a way of life, the emphasis tends to fall on what I must do to be a Christian or what I do because I am a Christian. And so it was very easy when I was growing up in, a, in good Bible teaching churches for which I am so thankful. But growing up in those churches, I was still often left with the impression that the most important elements in the Christian life had to do with my behavior, with what I believed about certain moral positions and actions, in other words, my way of life. It was a really big deal that I not spend time around sin or sinners, that I come away from them, I separate myself from them. And in turn, this tended to lead to a version of Christianity that was often defined by what I didn't do. It was largely a negative ethic. Being a Christian uh, could often mean that I just never drank any alcohol, didn't smoke cigarettes, I didn't get to go to dances, I didn't go to movies or use vulgar language, or listen to the Beatles. <laughs> to be identified before a lost world as a Christian involved how short a boy's hair should be and how long a girl's skirt should be. We were always against these things and willing to suffer even if pagans thought we were just a little weird for living this way. Of course, I'm not saying that none of these issues matter, but I am saying that the emphasis is in the wrong place. And that can be very dangerous when it comes to understanding a life that is right with God. It is possible to have all the right biblical knowledge and still get your relationship with God all wrong. Nicodemus may have put most of us to shame with the depth of his biblical knowledge and the passion with which he lived a righteous life, but he got it all wrong because his emphasis was always on an external way of life instead of the gift of life that only God can give. 
So think about it. All of my morality, all of my costly, even if well-intentioned self-righteousness can never produce life. And life is what I need because, as the scriptures teach, I am by nature spiritually dead. And you can dress up that corpse with the most beautiful clothes and you can style the hair and you can spread on that makeup and put lipstick on it, but that will never make it alive. And life is what is needed to enter God's kingdom. Life, to be part of God's family. And so let's work our way through the text and see if we can hear what Jesus wants us to hear this morning. We begin in verse 1 with Nicodemus's credentials. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus is not mentioned in any, in any of the other three Gospels, but we're told here that he was a member of the Pharisees, that he had a position of prominence as a ruler of the Jews. And later on, in verse 10, Jesus even refers to him as the teacher of Israel. He's what we might call today an influencer. The Pharisees were not all bad people. We sometimes give them a really bad rap, but they weren't all bad. And here's Nicodemus as a Pharisee at least being open to engaging with Jesus. Verse 2 goes on to tell us of Nicodemus's consideration. He was a considerate person, and you can see that in verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless... God is with him. So Nicodemus approaches at night. Uh, maybe he did it because he was really busy during the day. Uh, maybe he did it because he didn't want anybody to see him actually making contact with Jesus. But he meets with Jesus and he begins the conversation with some courteous pleasantries. He addresses Jesus as rabbi, calls him master. Teacher, which is interesting because remember that Nicodemus here is much older than Jesus. Jesus is only about 30 years old at this time, and Jesus had no rabbinic teaching or, or uh, uh, he had no formal training whatsoever, and yet he calls him a rabbi. Here's his actual comment Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. If you back up to chapter 2, verse 23, you see that many people were believing in Jesus there when they saw the miraculous signs that Jesus performed, but the faith that they had, the belief that they had in Jesus was not saving faith. And the text makes that clear. It was fake faith. It only demonstrated to us that the crowd and Nicodemus associated miracles with the power of God. That's really all we learn. And by Nicodemus kind of 
buttering Jesus up a bit here and speaking these pleasantries to him show us that perhaps he took a Dale Carnegie course along the way somewhere. But Jesus is completely unmoved by such flattery, and he instead goes on to expose Nicodemus' confusion caused by his ignorance in verses 3 and 4. Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So it would seem that while he was taking that Dale Carnegie course, he must have missed the introduction to basic human anatomy. He doesn't understand. He completely misses the point that Jesus is talking about spiritual birth. And unless you experience just such a birth, you won't even be able to see the kingdom of God. You could be standing right in the front row watching all of these bona fide miracles with your own eyes and still not see still not comprehend what's going on right there before your eyes. Spiritually speaking, by nature you are dead, and dead people are really not that good at accurate analysis. And so Jesus now spends the next four verses in our text correcting Nicodemus' ignorance. Verses 5 to 8. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel then that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus describes here the experience of being born again, and he describes it with a parallel expression. Being born of water and the Spirit. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But Jesus also here makes the rather masterful observation that flesh can only give birth to flesh. But that it takes spirit, capital S, to give birth to spirit. Think of the miracle of human birth. I have three children. I was present in the delivery room for all three, and that's back when they let me take my uh, VHS recorder on my shoulder to record the three births. I got to see them all. It's an amazing miracle that we get to participate in, but there are limits to my participation because a body of flesh and bones like mine can only help produce another body of flesh and bones. And if we are ever going to see and enter into the kingdom of God, we need a whole new birth. We need a whole different life, a life that we are incapable of producing on our own. And Jesus describes something of what that spiritual rebirth is like. He says, it's like the wind. 
The wind blows, but you don't really see it coming. You can't tell exactly where it's going to go, but you see the effects. And that's how it is when someone is born of the Spirit, he says. We don't control the Spirit's regenerating activity, but we know it when we see it. So there's the flow of the text. Let me unpack a couple of the key principles or uh, themes of this text for us. Go a little deeper with them. And the first key concept that Jesus mentions in verse 3 and also in verse 5 is the concept of the kingdom of God. There are a couple different ways to understand the idea of the kingdom of God in Scripture. One is in an all-inclusive sense. That from beginning to end, the Bible declares that there is a God, but that he is not the nice, tame, moldable God of our current American culture. That he is not a kind of like higher power that we get to define. When the Bible announces that there is a God, it declares him to be the reigning king over everything. That he is the source of everything that exists. That he maintains everything that exists in its existence by the simple word of his power. Let it be, and it is. And that's the only reason why anything or anyone has ever existed, exists now, or ever will exist. And by virtue of creating all things and all people, this God of the Bible has absolute ownership of everything and everyone. We are his by virtue of creation. And when I say that we are his... I mean it in an all-inclusive sense. The body that I live in belongs to him. I'm just a steward of it. It belongs to him because he made it. I breathe his air. I eat his food that comes from his land, watered by his water, that every ounce of energy that I ever have is a gift. That my wife of 42 years belongs to God. That my children, that my nine grandchildren all belong to God. They only exist by his decree and at his pleasure. Every tree, every bird, every animal, every friend, every enemy, every planet, every element on the chart or buried in the earth, every molecule throughout all the galaxies, all the way to the edge of creation, is part of God's overall kingdom. They all have their being, they all run their courses under the limitless sweep of God's sovereign reign as king. Psalm 103.19 declares, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Exodus 15.18 announces, The Lord will reign forever 
and ever. And of course, we all know the crescendo of Scripture climaxes in Revelation 19 with the scene from our future. We're going to experience this one day. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you like it or not, God reigns. The Lord is king forever and ever, without exception, without restriction, and without an ending. But there is another sense in which the Bible uses the concept of the kingdom of God. And it's the way that Jesus is using it in our text this morning. There is the all-inclusive sense of the reality of God as king, but there's also, as there is here, an exclusive sense that the prophets throughout the Hebrew scriptures described. They said that the day is coming when we will see a kingdom established at the end of history and the king of this kingdom is referred to in Isaiah 9 and Zechariah 9 as a son of David. The Lord's servant, he's called in Isaiah 42 and 49. Sometimes the king of this coming kingdom is referred to as the Lord himself. Zechariah 14, verse 9. In other words, the coming kingdom or king is thus differentiated from the Lord and at the same time is identified with him or as him. And the most familiar example to all of us from the prophets comes from Isaiah 9, where it says, Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Which means what? He rules it all. All the power and authority belongs to him. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. So there it is. Differentiated from and yet called God. He's a son, he's a child, yet God. It's just like John 1 at the beginning of this gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, differentiated from him, and the Word was God. So this given child, this God-man would come, and his reign as king would be established, but this kingdom would have an exclusive sense about it. You have to enter this kingdom. Don't be deceived. Paul writes about this kingdom in 1 Corinthians 6. Not everyone inherits this kingdom. By the time we get to John 3 in the unfolding storyline of the Bible, this picture of a promised kingdom should be known by those who have studied their Bibles. And that's why Jesus chides Nicodemus about being the teacher of Israel, but not even aware of this promised kingdom or its characteristics. 
Jesus is not being novel here. Nor is he teaching something new. He's picking up the theme of this promised kingdom and what it will take to be part of it. But this brings us to the second key concept of John 3. The whole concept of being born again. For Jesus said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Why can't you see the kingdom without this new birth? Because you're spiritually dead in your sins. You are hopelessly addicted to sin. You are dead toward God as a result of this. You can't see it because you are incapable of getting your eyes off of yourself, off of your own interests. There is no life there. And in order to enter this promised end-time kingdom, ruled by a son of David, who is identified as God, Jesus said, you have to start all over. That you can't just reform yourself to get into the kingdom. Your only hope of entering that kingdom is to be born again, a spiritual rebirth. In other words, we need to be acted upon as another. I'm dead He has to make me alive. The new birth is not something I do. It is something that is done to me. If you look at verse 5, you see that that parallel phrase that helps us understand what Jesus is talking about. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So to get... Technical here, just for a moment. In this phrase, born of water and the spirit, the preposition of governs both water and the spirit. Which means we're talking about a single source for this new birth. Scholars call it a conceptual unity. In other words, being born of water and the spirit is one experience and not two. Why does Jesus talk about being born again as uh, being born of water and the Spirit? Because this is the very transformative experience that was promised by God through the prophet Ezekiel 600 years earlier. So to see just how clear the parallels are, between Ezekiel and what Jesus is teaching here. Listen to just a few verses from Ezekiel 36. The same thing. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will take out your heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a living, beating, fleshy heart to replace it. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey all of that I have taught. And so God promised that one day he would do a new work that would solve our two greatest problems. The problem of our sin, that is our uncleanness and our guilt, and the problem of the source of that sin The problem of the heart. My heart being stone, unresponsive toward God, and I am powerless to change it. 
And the gospel of Jesus Christ solves both of our biggest problems. It's what August Top Lady in 1763 called the double cure in his iconic hymn, Rock of Ages. I don't know how much you know about him. He, he died at 38 years of age of tuberculosis. But of course, he wrote this great hymn before he died. Maybe you remember the first verse. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. So that is exactly what we need. It is exactly what Christ has secured for us. His finished work on the cross was the fulfillment of Ezekiel 36. And when Jesus said that unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he is referring to the need for forgiveness and the need for new right desires, that no one can enter God's kingdom without these, and that this is precisely why Jesus insisted that a person must be born again. Which now, to get very personal about it, how do I know if I've been born again? Well, think of what Jesus taught here. It's not perfection that is evidence that you've been born again. What, what lets you know you've been born again is that there is evidence of the life of God in you. The new life of God, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you, and there's evidence of that. Do you love Jesus perfectly? No. Do you even love him as much as you want to love him? No. Do you love him at all? And if you say yes, it means that God has acted upon you because you don't love him. The flesh is at enmity with God, an enemy of God. It cannot submit to the law of God. And 1 John 4, 7 says, anyone who loves has been born of God. If you love God, if you love your neighbor, imperfectly to be sure, but if there's love for God and, and you're committed to loving your neighbor as yourself, evidence of the life of God. You say, yeah, but I struggle so much. In my Christian life, I fall so far short of even my own standards. Struggling in your life to obey Jesus is not a sign that you're not born again. In fact, the struggle itself is evidence of the new birth. Your faith, even a mustard seed of faith, is evidence that you have been born again. These things do not come from your flesh. It means that God has graciously acted upon you, dead as you were in your trespasses and sins, while you were still a sinner. Christ died for you, and he raised you to new life. How should we respond to such truth as this? Well, it means we should pray. Why? Because the only hope for spiritual renewal and spiritual awakening in my life, in my marriage, my family, our nation or the world, will not come from our efforts. 
Our only hope for spirit, true spiritual awakening, it has to come from God. And therefore, we pray, we plead with him, change my heart, oh God. Change me, change our marriage, our neighborhood, our nation, and the world. It means that we must keep the word of God central in everything that we do because God works through means to bring about the new birth. 1 Peter 1.23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So if we want people to experience this new birth that Jesus has been talking about, that now opens the gates of heaven, of, of uh, the, the kingdom of God for them, then we must be faithfully proclaiming the word. Because we, it is, it is, we come to faith through the word about Christ. So we have a responsibility then to be sharing the good news of Christ, but this truth also takes the pressure off when it comes to evangelism. Because we are ambassadors for Christ, we are to be faithfully sharing the good news about what God has done through Jesus, but the pressure's off because I can't change their heart, God can. And he chooses to do it through the gospel. So that as I share the gospel with my words and with my actions, that's the means that he tends to use. But it's up to God to raise them to new life. It's up to God to blow his spirit upon them to raise them to new birth. Christianity is not a way of life as much as it is a gift of life. God's very life in us. Let's pray. Lord, we continue to stand amazed that even our faith, our conviction of sin, our repentance from that sin, all of these things are acts of your grace acting upon us, that we were dead, but you made us alive with Christ, Father. You are to be praised from beginning to end for our salvation and that even though this standard of the new birth, you hold to it so clearly, you also, you also provide it to us by grace. And so we thank you. Let your word do its work now for the glory of Jesus Christ and the advancement of his kingdom. Amen.